Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. No. (laughs) Nick's back. Oh my God! It's not a mosh pit in 1993. <laughs> You're in Alice in Chains concert. Oh God, guys, we survived World War Three. Oh, we all came together as a country, well, half a country. Oh, and we all sacrificed those non-existent lives. It was, it was harrowing, but we pulled through. Cooler heads prevailed. Cooler Nick. heads prevailed. Not For now. in media, <laughs> or on the left. <laughs> or in Congress, um, somewhere, <laughs> cooler heads prevailed. Anyways, hey, it's New Year. Hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Welcome back. Hey, Nick. Thanks. Uh, before we get started, uh, all the usual fun stuff. If you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want, uh, want to see what we are up to, <clears throat> uh, follow us on uh, Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast uh, you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, <clears throat> Stitcher, uh, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Review us, share us, like us through there. Um, we always appreciate the support. And like we mentioned the past several weeks, uh, we have our own merch line, which you can find on uh, teespring.com. Check out our social media to get a direct link there because I have no idea how to get there otherwise. Um, It's very cool. We'll keep adding stuff to that. Mugs, T-shirts, hoodies, all very comfortable, all very high quality. Yes. Made by the finest sweatshops in all of Southeast Asia. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, so check that out. we finally don't have to talk about impeachment. I'm so excited about it. We get to talk about foreign policy the entire friggin' episode. Oh, it makes me so happy in a very weird kind of evil way. Um, we're going to talk about Iran. There's major, yep. major developments over the past uh, past week or so. Uh, Something happened yeah. with Iran? Yeah. Um, I, I don't really know much about it, to be honest. <laughs> Some people seemed upset. <laughs> Um, but I just figured that was another day on Twitter, so I, I kind of ignored it. Uh, but anyways, um, especially last night, there were some there was some late breaking news um, or non-existent news, depending on who you talk to. Uh, but Bill, can you give us kind of a rundown of what's been going on the past week or so? Of course, as Nick said, it we finally found a topic that could pull us away from impeachment. Almost, we'll, we'll hit Bolton at the end. But of course, we're referring to the assassination or targeted killing, depending on your preferred nomenclature, of the Iranian general Qassem Soleimani. Soleimani was the leader of the foreign wing of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and was killed in a U.S. airstrike at Baghdad's International Airport on Friday. 
Iran responded Tuesday night by firing a reported 22 ballistic missiles at two military bases in Iraq that housed U.S. troops, although no casualties, as we've heard. Given the gravity of these developments, we're going to devote nearly the entire episode to breaking it all down. We'll start this opening session by thinking about the attack itself. Was it a legitimate use of force? Was the threat posed by Soleimani truly imminent? What should we expect from Iran's response to the response and so on? Uh, Cooler heads appear to, in the short term, have prevailed. Uh, But will this dramatic escalation lead the country to the brink of war? And finally, is there a strategy behind the Trump administration's action? And if so, what do we make of it? We will address Trump's threat to attack Iran's cultural sites, the War Powers Act, and Iraq asking the U.S. troops to leave in speed round. Phil, we both teach uh, courses on just war theory. There is no doubt that this case will go down in history. Where where do you want to start? Uh, it's like there's so much, right? There, there there's just a, a lot to tackle here. Um, I you know as I as I thought through this, it, it seems like they, we we need to talk about the decision to to take out Soleimani, what went into that decision, and why that decision was made. Um, we need to talk about the implications, like what does this mean for the U.S. and the Middle East? What does it mean for Iran? You know, is I've had you know. As you saw, people, you know, wondering, are we at war or was this World War Three? What comes next? Um, and then, I, of course, there's the ethical stuff. And, and I, I, I sort of I, what I'd like to do is kind of go through those yeah. and then come around at the end to this question of whether it was the right move to make or not based on all of this stuff. So I, maybe we start with the decision. Right. So the, just the decision to take out uh, Soleimani. Um and I don't. I, this in and of itself, there's so much to talk about, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this week, for somebody who teaches U.S. foreign policy, as I watched the news last night of Iran striking back, you know, talk of of deterrence, of you know, uh, um, menus of options, of of you know, uh, mis you know, misinterpreted uh, miscalculations. Uh, there's all sorts of Graham Allison stuff in this. Anyway, um, I you know, I think we, let's just. I, well, part of what reason I bring that up, that also brings up questions of diversionary theory of war and right the, the motivations of Trump behind this. So, so I mean, let's I guess let's start with that. Let's start with the decision to to, to take out Soleimani. So Soleimani is undoubtedly in in U.S. foreign policy um, a bad guy, right? I mean, he's been he is. A, Maybe you, maybe one of you has a different way of viewing it. The, the the closest analogy I can come up with is that he is essentially the equivalent, the Iranian equivalent of the head of the CIA, mm-hmm. right? So he's in charge of essentially external, you know, operations. He's he's the guy who's who's coordinating all of their proxies. Through there's another good foreign policy word throughout the throughout the region. So Hezbollah, the you know the the various uh, proxy militias in in. Iraq, um, you know, uh, people who are fighting uh, in in the Syrian civil uh, Syrian civil war, all of them are essentially run by uh, were run by Soleimani, and there's there's without a doubt he was very effective. He was really good at what he did. Um, American soldiers have have lost their lives due to uh, stuff that he was in charge of 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 running. So he's he's you know this is in in that sense um, a, a significant thing, right? It's not surprising that the U.S. wants him gone. But I, I come around to this question of, you know, whether it was the right thing to do and whether there's a strategy here. So that's kind of what I, I what, what do you think? I mean, there's lots of evidence that, uh, well, there's been lots of discussion. I, I hear people on both sides, some who think that there's no strategy here. We've talked about Trump as an impulse machine, right? He's, he's, we're in the middle of an impeachment hearing. There's been this back and forth antagonistic stuff with Iran that looks a little bit like what happened with, with um, North Korea, 
But then there's also this, you know, larger strategic idea that that this is a significant victory for the U.S. I, I I don't know where do you where do you fall on this? Was this something that he just kind of stumbled into? Was this a strategically minded decision? So before we get into that, can we yeah. just like back up and look at the the timeline of what actually happened? Sure. So there were two kind of instances that brought forward like what you were talking about, Bill, these menu of potential retaliatory uh, options uh, in terms of uh, uh, the U.S. So was it there was an attack that killed a U.S. serviceman and uh, Iraqi military members before the attack on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, correct? Mm -hmm. So the first option, uh, Trump chose a a lesser uh, uh, retaliatory option. And then once the attack on the embassy happened, again, there was a different menu of option uh, options. Soleimani was kind of the the far out, you know, thing that nobody really thought he was going to yeah. pick. And that's the one that he ended up choosing. Right. Now, my understanding is previously Soleimani had been barred from traveling to Iraq specifically, but outside of Iran in general. And the U.S. had been tracking his movements and knew where he was. So. When Trump picked this option, they knew exactly where he was, who he was with. Drone strikes called in. You know, he's dead before he leaves the tarmac at the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I just kind of wanted to get that out there to, to kind of understand what was going on. Um, I, I know I'm going to have a different opinion than you guys on this one. I, I think this is this is a, a, a net win, like not even net win. This this is this is a major major political and policy win for Trump and and the US. Uh, I think over, you know, dozens of podcast episodes that we've done, we've talked about Iran and its ability to wage war throughout the Middle East and and so chaos uh, through their proxy network, which, again, to Phil's point, was being orchestrated and run by Soleimani, among many others, but he was the mastermind behind it. U.S. servicemen have been killed. Many U.S. servicemen have, have been killed uh, because of his actions. Countless Iraqis and, and other, uh, you know, locals uh, in the Middle East, in, in Syria and Iran, um, you know, it, it's just I, I, I cannot I understand the, the hesitancy to think that we're going back to, you know, targeted assassinations and, and, and killings. But the effectiveness of the Iranian regime to completely throw stabilization out the window where the U.S. either couldn't create a, a, a stable foothold in the region uh, or any nation could create a stable foothold in the region is th- to the detriment not only of the United States uh, or the Europeans or you know NATO allies, but to the detriment of the Iraqis and the Iranians and anybody else who is influenced by this. This this was a this was a good call. Like, I, I think this was this was really effective, and their response to it seems to show that they want to de-escalate the situation more than anything. They launched this missile bar- missile barrage, mm-hmm. quote unquote, uh, which they announced to the Iraqis two hours beforehand, so there was no one in harm's way. Uh, and then afterwards, they still show that they want they there was some sort of retaliatory effort. But then the 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 uh, rhetoric t- uh, today was definitely pulling back from the brink on both sides. Yeah, I, I think this kind of helped to keep the status quo in the sense that there's still a power in the Middle East. They don't have to have a, a direct confrontation with the U.S. 
the U.S. has taken out one of their primary strategists in this whole debacle, and we're kind of back where we started. And we, it, it, there's no World War III, despite what every friggin' person on Twitter uh, was saying for the past three days. Well, for now, for now, Stupid right? Yeah, so, so you guys have put a lot out there. A couple thoughts that occurred to me is that it, we need more time to really see how this all plays out, right? It, it, we're still so early. I mean, literally, like in the midst of all this playing out, there's a couple questions that we, you know, you both have raised. One is he a legitimate target? Two, what is the broad strategy? If, if I if I jump with the latter and thinking about the strategy, I still wonder what is the end goal of the Trump administration here. Is it deterrence? So you're right, Nick, that the the Trump administration for a long period of time has not been responding forcefully to Iranian provocation. So there was the, you know, the attack on uh, the Saudi oil facility. They shot down one of our drones and, and, you know, we really hadn't done much. So you wonder whether Trump just got to the point where he said we need to to show them that we mean business. And then if, if they're thinking this is a deterrent, there's some val- there's some potential value there. I'm also wondering, you know, so they've pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. They've imposed sanctions. They've droned arguably the number two person in Iran. What's the end goal of that? Is it to get them to the table to negotiate? Is it regime change? Like all of those things are unclear to me. You know, Trump today in his statement, or at least part of his statement, he talked about, you know, we want a new deal. Well, when I don't know if a new deal is possible now, right? I mean, I'm just wondering, and it's, it's not clear to me what what the end game is, uh, there may be some deterrent effect, but I think, you know, it's going to take some more time to really have this shake out. I mean, I think they have to kind of come back to the table at this point. We're imposing additional sanctions. They now don't have any leverage in terms of the Europeans since they said they're completely withdrawing from the nuclear agreement, that they're not going to abide by any of the the, uh, the provisions of it. So what what leverage do they have? Well, they were they were smart. They're not fully out of the Iran nuclear accord, right? They're out, but they're still going to allow the International Atomic Energy Agency in there. So they're they're being a bit coy about that. So we'll, we'll mm-hmm. see. Phil, you were going to say something. I mean, I think so. Just to comment on a couple of things that you you guys have said, one of which is that you know this if, if this is. Uh, Trump's attempt to basically say there is some line, right? And and at, at some point, we're going to push back. Uh, this could have been an effective way of doing that. But um, at the same time, what Trump, he, he, he undermined that in some ways by uh, through Twitter, right? So he went out and tweeted about how if Iran responds, if Iran attacks US military bases, we will, he, he lays out a response in which he says, we will, you know, whatever we have this, whatever, what did he say? However many trillion dollars of fancy new military equipment and we will use it against you. And then they did. And he didn't do anything, right? He, which, which I'm grateful for, right? I, I think the the de-escalation is what was the. I was relieved that that is what how this played out. Exactly like you said, Nick, that they Iran clearly wanted that. They they needed to save face at home. They telegraphed that they were going to do this so they could avoid the loss of of lives. Um, they can say they they responded, and we can all walk away. Um, so I'm glad that Trump didn't respond. But if the whole idea was to build credibility that the U.S. is willing to, you know, to to push back, it, it, you undermine it with these threats, with these red lines that he draws that he doesn't actually back up. Um, so it, it's where I he he just needs to talk <laughs> a little bit less about Iran. It'll be interesting to see over the coming you know weeks what he says and what he does on on uh, on Twitter should and we, other places. We, oh, go ahead. Go the ahead. other part. Nick, well, I was go just going to say, should no, we, I, we, we, we started we, the conversation about whether he was a legitimate target or not. Should we should we finish that? I mean, I'm curious to see. I think Nick, you think 
legitimate target, 100%. smart move. Yes. Uh, Phil, do you think that, that, you know, thinking in terms of a legitimate target, uh, separate from whether we should have done this, is, is it okay for the United States to be assassinating a general from another sovereign state? I, I don't know. This is this is hard. I mean, I, this is where I get older. You know, as I uh, the older I get, the the less black and white things seem. So, uh, you know, in, on one hand, yes, he he is a, a military figure involved in military operations against the U.S. and against other people. That makes him a valid target. On the other hand, he is in some strange ways also a political mm-hmm. figure. And, and you get into the question of assassination and whether or not assassination, you know, assassination undermines, uh, you know, the self-determination of people. But I, also this, you know, self-determination is is a is a problematic term when you're talking about Iran, which is, you know, sort of democratic, but not really. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I think that push comes to shove. The thing that I I have a harder time with is not necessarily that he wasn't a valid target, but that it didn't make mm-hmm. it wasn't it, the sort of cost benefit analysis was didn't make sense in this moment. So I'm not mourning the loss of of him. And this is kind of goes back to what. So I'll, I'll kind of try to tie this together, yeah. and then I want to hear what you think about the ethics of it. Because you were saying, Nick, that you think this is a you know a. Um, complete mm-hmm. win for the US. And and I think him no longer being around is a foreign policy success for the United States. I think the for me the problem comes when you look sort of longer term. If you just look at the last 2 days, we took out Soleimani, they launched rockets and 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 sort of we all backed down. That's a that's a win, but I think the longer term, the bigger implications are that which we'll get to later in the podcast. Iraq is asking us to leave that we're having to divert forces from fighting ISIS to turn them, you know, more towards uh, Iran. This probably strengthens um, Iran's position in Iraq. It's probably strengthens Iran's position throughout uh, the Middle East in, in a number of ways. I, it, this had, you know, a NATO allies questioning the 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 uh, intelligence of this decision. Um, and we have the benefit of hindsight in that we saw last night what happened and today it was de-escalated. But when this happened, we didn't know that it would go this way. And so if you think about the risk that was involved, even if it was a 40% chance of, of an all-out war happening, I think Soleimani's being gone is is a good thing, but I don't know that it was worth the pro- the potential price that was yeah. paid. So you know, the the analogy would be Kim Jong Un. If Kim Jong Un was was gone, that would be a good thing, right? He's 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 a, he's a, a human rights violator. He's an authoritarian. He threatens the United States. Um, if we could eliminate him, that would be good. That's a strong benefit of, you know, if we could launch a strike and kill him, that's a big benefit. But this is where I go back to Graham Allison and weighing costs and benefits. The, the benefits are really strong, but the costs of doing that are massive. So the costs would outweigh the benefit. And that's where I come around to. I I, I worry that the costs of doing this outweigh it. It's not that him being gone isn't beneficial. It's that the other stuff that comes with it, I think, yeah. might outweigh I, I mean, I guess the, the analogy between North Korea and them, and we've talked about it before, if there was a... If, you know, again, like you were talking about, we did assassinate Kim Jong-un, there would probably be significant repercussions of that. I think that Iran is much more of a rational actor in this situation as much as, you know, death to America and, you know, the the, uh, the revolutionary government and whatnot. They still operate 
in their best interest and have a relatively cosmopolitan population that understands the nuances of foreign policy and geopolitics and could potentially turn on them in the right situation. North Korea, I think, is a is a different animal, a rabbit animal, mm. a mangy animal, <laughs> if you will. Um, I, I think that the nature of foreign policy and geopolitics is it's it's that fog. You don't necessarily have a, a great cost benefit analysis a lot of the time. I think sometimes we've gotten so used to kind of playing it safe, especially uh, over the past, not necessarily the, the Bush administration, Bush too, but certainly during the Obama administration, yeah. uh, talking about crossing red lines. That's that's where, you know, the term became yeah. famous. You know, but those those red sure. lines were crossed. There was a red line that was crossed here. There was uh, repercussions of that. And again, it's there to escalate that and say that, you know, the, the Iranians crossed a, a red line by retaliating, quote unquote, by lobbing a few missiles into what was effectively an empty airbase, which wasn't even an American airbase. It was an Iraqi airbase that had American personnel on it. Um, I think that those are, are two, those are apples and oranges in my opinion. The issue of Soleimani, whether he's a legitimate I, target is a really, really interesting one. I'll come back. I, I'm going to push back a little bit, Nick, on, on whether we should have done it, but I'll hold on what? For, for a second. <laughs> you know, I think, I think he absolutely is a legitimate target. He is, you know, a military commander who was actively engaged in a targeting another military, right? So we weren't in an official declared war, but nobody declares war anymore, right? You know, these 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 proxy forces were targeting U.S. forces. U.S. forces were targeting, you know, the proxy forces. They so they were targeting more than they were targeting uh, contractors and companies yeah, and right. everything. Right. I mean, so so they so I think he's a legitimate target. But that being said, it's still, you know, talking about lines to go after a high ranking official is a significant escalation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as if this is some asymmetrical terrorist organization where individuals are going to carry out the attacks themselves. When we drone people, usually it's individuals who are actively involved. He's not actively involved. He's the brains behind the operation. I had a student today, we were talking about this, and he said, well, you know, the comparison either to the head of the CIA or the Department of Defense, you can't, it's not the same thing because those individuals don't kill innocent people. And I, and I, you know, he said, this guy's a bad guy. Well, well and then, so then my thought was, well, I, you know, this, this depends on perspective, right? The United States, we're droning all sorts of right, right. individuals around the world and we have collateral damage and we've killed innocent people. So I, I don't think it's, I don't want to go down the relativism rabbit hole, but I, I do wonder whether this kind of escalation to say that, you know, political military figures are legitimate targets is, is a good, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm troubled a bit by that. Yeah. Phil, you had a comment on the last thing, yeah. Right. If if no, I mean, I I don't I don't remember. I, I, I lose my train of thought. I'm already onto what Bill was saying. Um, the the uh, the yeah, I mean, the analogy would be if if Iran, who thinks the U.S. is evil, uh, were to drone right the yeah. Secretary of Defense right? or or Mike Pompeo and and our response whether that was whether that is legitimate or not our response would certainly be that the, we would take yes, that right. as an act of war right I mean that would be and so uh, to to assume that Iran wouldn't do that was a 
pretty big assumption. So I, I feel like we've we've gotten lucky that Iran is view well Iran and the U.S. have both reacted in a sort of you know there's lots of talk about how neither side wants war. But in these high tension sort of situations in foreign policy, people talk about how mistakes get made and, and how there's the need to save face and to escalate. And I feel I was actually this is, sounds strange. I was I was encouraged by uh, Iran's response last night um, in that they it seemed like they were acting rationally. They were trying to save face. But at the same time, right. send a message that this is this is our attempt to save face. It's not our attempt to escalate things. Um, and I was happy to see that. I mean, part of my concern with all of this is Mike Pompeo plays a significant role. Um, he's the secretary of state who should mean that he, you know, which should I, you know, in, in theory, mean that he's pushing for more diplomatic solutions. Uh, but he's a huge Iran yeah. war hawk. Right. And, and we've talked about how Trump is susceptible to the people around him. Um, and Bolton's not there, but Pompeo is. And I, I was worried that uh, that Trump might not read the the sort of the between the lines of what Iran Iran was doing. So I, back to what you were saying, Bill, is that th this was a significant I think for America, Americans need to recognize how significant of an attack this was. This was not just we, yeah. you know, a regular droning. We killed a, a major military and governmental figure, mm -hmm. someone who was who was had been encouraged and was seen as a possible president of, of yeah. Iran. And, and talk about cooler heads prevailing. I think, Nick, you're, to your point earlier, I, I, I think Iran w is pretty good at what they're doing here. I mean, that was the idea that they were going to, they had to have some sort of attack, but to, they telegraphed it. They, they informed the Iraqis who they knew would tell the Americans to say, we don't want any American casualties here. We don't want any Iraqi casualties. We have to respond. We're going to launch a bunch of cruise missiles at you, but we don't want to kill anybody. That's that's pretty smart, right? It's it's in some ways we're thinking about deterrence. They're acting, they're placating their domestic public to say we're doing something, we're striking back at the Americans, but we're gonna we're gonna take a step back and hope that Trump will understand that signal and then not respond and not respond by escalating. And Trump got the signal. You mean like what Trump did in Syria like a year ago? When he the, telegraphed that went after um, with the, was uh, it the, the chemical weapons attack attacking the the airport to the air, yeah. airport yeah mm -hmm. yeah but that it's I think it's slightly different though because there was no threat that Syria was going to respond right I mean this is a no but a I mean the response is almost identical yeah You're telegraphing your intent mm -hmm. to attack a military target but you don't want any casualties to save face but also to show that there is some sort of response yeah. Right. I mean, I think it's so yeah. I think he would understand that very succinctly. <laughs> yeah. And to, to, to Trump's credit. Right. Uh, I, I still think the decision to attack Soleimani was a bad one that is going to have future consequences. But his response to Iran's response was good. It's what we want to see. So I feel like we should or we need to talk about the, the fact that there's a tendency in the news and even as we talk to kind of view like, oh, we went through this and now everything's back to normal. Um, and, and I think that uh, I don't know that that's accurate. I think things are different now. I mean, so the one of the differences is that this was an escalation from Iran, right? They launched crew, they launched uh, ballistic missiles from Iran. In the past, they have when they've launched these attacks, they've done them with rockets and mortars um, through proxies. So the you know Iran is not directly doing this. There's plausible deniability. There was no denying it. They launched from Iran at U.S. forces and they claimed credit immediately. That's a that's a big change, and I don't know that it's going back to the way it 
was. It's like things have been escalated and they've calmed down a little bit. But I feel like the next time it escalates again, it's starting from a higher point already. I don't think Iran's Iran's not just going to take this and go home. They're going to de-escalate right now, but over the long run, they're going to continue to respond. I think this changes the terms of how this conflict is being played and is being negotiated in ways that it's not just like we we got through this I, and we're back to normal. I, I, Am I, I wrong? I personally in that? think that the the way that we've seen this play out over the past several years in terms of Iranian influence uh, in the region will be almost identical. Uh, you know, two weeks, a month, six months from now. Because the only way that the the Iranians are effective in the region is through their proxies. I think this has kind of pushed them back into a corner where they now have to play by the rules in terms of if they're going to have some sort of retaliatory effort, they're going to have to do it from within their own borders, uh, which makes them susceptible to uh, international cond- uh, condemnation. Where, again, to your point, there was plausible deniability when they were working through their proxies and they were much more effective that way. So I, I don't think that if there is any sort of I, I don't think there's going to be any sort of escalation from this point forward. Realistically, I think that they're going to realize that the only way we, we can play the game without risking a direct confrontation with an enemy that we know we can't win against is to use a network that Soleimani had frankly put in place and used very effectively which is still for there. decades, which is still there. There's still leadership there. There's still cells and organizations everywhere. Nothing has really changed there. So they're not going to ignore that. To think that they're going to use their military assets from within Iran and think that that's going to be as effective without major repercussions is... That, that's just not a winning scenario for them. I guess the question is, what is the, so, the end goal of U.S. foreign policy? In the last couple of days, the goal is avoid war, right? So that's, you know, and we did that. We managed to avoid war for the time being. And everybody's like, oh, okay, that's great. But long term with Iran, that's not the goal. The goal is to prevent them from acquiring a nuclear weapon. That is the big goal. No. That was the whole idea of the Iran oh, nuclear yeah. accord. But the end goal beyond that is regime, regime change. change. Right. Okay. So, so not direct, avoid, but... avoid war. <laughs> right. Don't let them get a nuclear weapon and regime change. Uh, you know, I, I think regime change is probably too far down the road. And and we avoided war, and that's great. But but the ability to now prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, I think, is degraded. It's much more difficult to get to them. Iran is, is not going to have any interest in sitting down and negotiating after, after all of this because now the Iranian public, which was pushing back, which was protesting, the government was gonna, was engaging in repression, now the, the Iranian public is on board. Mm-hmm. You know, they have rallied around the the government in a way that is going to make it much more difficult for the U.S. to get them to the, the bargaining table. So that's where I think this was not necessarily a, a long-term strategic move. I guess we'll see. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. So I, 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 all of this brings me back around to the cost-benefit analysis in, in which I, I see the costs, as I consider this, the costs continue to rise. And the benefits seem flimsier. So, it, as you said a second ago, this won't like this won't change anything. Uh, well, it might. So, uh, there's a question about how much he, Soleimani himself, his tactical, you know, uh, uh, abilities. How much of that was uh, 
the the reason for Iran's success in in a lot of their um, uh, proxy wars and whatnot. Uh, but most people, you know, think that he part of it is yes, he's really good at it. But this is a systemic thing, right? It's not going to end because he's gone. Iran has other people who will fill that role, other people who will continue with this, and so we've sent a message. But we've also made it clear that we don't mm-hmm. want war, right? We've, we've sent a message, but we don't want war, which boxes us in moving forward. So here's where I think it's escalated, right? So what happens next time Iran pushes the limits? How do we send a message next time? Because, you know, some sort of, of strike attack, because things have been escalated, because we've gone down this road and we've used this card now, the next time we need to send a message to Iran, how do we do that without provoking a war. Because if we strike another, if we do this again, if we strike another Iranian leader, if we strike within Iran, Iran can't do the, uh, we're going to you know telegraph it and not hurt people and de-escalate. They're going to have to respond. And so it feels like we've played this card at a time when I, I don't, I'm not sure that it was Again, I'm not I'm not saying that it's it's bad that he's gone, but I, I question the sort of strategic intelligence of this. I, I don't know that this was the time so, to play I mean, that here's, card. Uh, the question that I have with all this is when when would have been the time to play this card? We talk about this all the time. Well, you know, what is the proper response to Iran? How do we stop them doing from what they're doing? And no administration has done it. Certainly not the last administration. And something needed to be done. How many times have we talked about all of these proxy organizations and, and cells and splinter groups and terrorist organizations that have just run rampant throughout the Middle East. Something needed to be done. Something needs to be done. A message needs to be sent at some point. There's not going to be a good time to do it. I, like, I, I'm really curious what you guys think. Would When is the time to send a strong message? Well, so the, the previous two administrations, both the Obama administration and the George W. Bush administration, considered taking out Soleimani and then didn't because of the potential negative repercussions for that. It's one of those those issues where he, he's a bad guy, right? And there's a lot of bad guys in the international system. You don't take all of them out. Um, does this really serve in a cold, calculating, realist sort of way? Does his death really serve U.S. interests? And I, again... <laughs> In the short term, but if it pulls you in to Iraq or Iran in a in a a more complicated way, I I don't know, right? I'm I'm not I'm not upset that this guy is dead, right? I think that that's not a big issue. You're not warning him. No, I'm not. No, (laughs) but I I do wonder whether the United States, to Phil's point, you've you've dramatically escalated this issue. I don't know how you de-escalate, and I think diplomacy is is off the table for a while. Not permanently, but at least for a while, Iran is going to have no interest in a new Iran <laughs> nuclear deal. It's absurd. They're if not going to do that. If he gets Iran to the table for a new nuclear deal, I want him to get the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> I'm demanding that. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> if that happens, a good you know, deal. This yeah. Time. <laughs> I just don't, I don't see no, no no he destroyed the old deal provoked almost war with them and then back you down get you don't a get a Nobel deal, Prize but he, that's what he talked about slash today slash and burn and then it grows in, in, the, in his, his his press conference not his press conference in his statement today which which we could spend some time talking about that as well which was really bizarre he was talking about a new deal and to me this is absurd there's there's no ch- we don't talk about a new deal for a long time Iran is going to have Iran has been humbled. 
and the the Iranian public is upset, right? This is not just some show show parade uh, organized by the regime. The Iranian public is upset that this was done to that proud culture, right? So I mean that that's a that's a big deal. Nothing has been done to their proud culture. You know what? We should uh, and, and uh, realistically, this is this is the strategy. If there is uh, some sort of military intelligence official who is flouting international regulations and laws and is in another sovereign state where you shouldn't be. Donald, Donald Trump. What are you talking about? Flouting international. Donald, <laughs> Donald Rumsfeld. It, well, I mean, this is, I mean, no, I'm just saying, like, go, this, finish what this you were should saying, be right? a, a repeatable tactic. Droning? You are, you are flouting international so, regulations and laws, being where you're not supposed to be as a member of an organization that is causing a massive amount, a massive amount of chaos and discontent. All right, Nick, Nick, we invaded Iraq. We invaded Iraq. Right. Hey, you can't, you can't. But you know what? Here's the cold, calculating realist, realism aspect of this. We're the big, we're the big boys in yeah. the room. That's why there is no retaliatory effort from the Iranian state. That's why they have to work through their proxies. Sure. This isn't a cost-benefit analysis in the sense of if we do this, they do that. This tit for tat bullshit. They know that there is a, a differential in, in the power structure. So that needs to be taken into account as well. Yeah. So you can't you, you but but I, I understand what you're saying, but you, you can't have it. I mean, this is the thing that the U.S. has complained about for years or the like we have have been pissed that the international community thinks that Henry Kissinger or Donald Rumsfeld or George Bush or Dick Cheney is a war criminal and how dare they. So if this is where it becomes a slippery slope, if we start to say that if we think that what you're doing in other countries is wrong, we have a right to kill you. That That is this massive undermining of, of sovereignty and all sorts of, you know, it, in this particular case, it's easy to justify. But when it turns around and it's some other, you know, country around the world who says that Dick Cheney is a war criminal or Henry Kissinger is a war criminal or Barack Obama is a war criminal for droning, then you you can't you can't erode that that standard and and still hold the standard high for yourself. You can't say that if we have a problem for other countries around the world, then by all means kill their leaders, but yeah, don't do you dare do that. But think about it this States. way. If if another country droned George W. Bush, mm -hmm. killed him. Would the United States respond by firing, uh, you know, a couple dozen cruise missiles at an empty missile base, or would we start invading countries right. because we're of that? We're not talking about, you know, the, the the president of Iran. We're not talking about the Ayatollah. We're talking about a military official who we know is is the head of these organizations. Yes, these proxy groups. So if it had been Donald Rumsfeld during the Iraq war, if somebody had droned, if Iran had droned no, Donald I Rumsfeld even say during the Iraq I would, war, I, do you think I we would, would have done nothing about CIA it? It would be a, a good analogy to that. Yeah, I think there's a difference between the person. So if the, if Iran yeah. had droned the head of the CIA, oh, well, then we have a problem. What would we have done? <laughs> because again, we're us and they're them. Right, right. But I think it depends on your perspective there, right? right? I mean, it's yes, all perspective. Yes. Yeah. We should talk about beers and then talk more about Iran. <laughs> So, Phil, uh, what you? Yeah. <laughs> Glad we saw you were drinking a wonderful fancy beer. Tell us about it. I am. So I'm drinking a beer from Hill Farmstead Brewery, which is not a brewery that I knew much about. But I went uh, um, 
down to Brutopia and Keene and and got hooked up with the, this this beer. So Hill Farmstead is out of Greensboro Bend, Vermont, which is like far northern Vermont. I, I don't know that it's not you know a significant city or anything. And this brewery is uh, supposedly highly regarded, has won lots of awards. This beer, the beer that I'm drinking today, is Double Citra. Um, it's an Imperial IPA. Um, uh, beer advocate wow. gives it a perfect Jeez. score. It d- claims it's world class, um, and it is really good. Um, I was saying, I was talking about it before we came on the air, and I don't know <laughs> that I fully have the words to describe it. It is, it's, it's got the hoppiness, the the really kind of you know powerful hoppy flavor that I like out of an IPA, but there's almost no bitterness. It is so smooth. Um, and I, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it other than it, it is, is really fantastic. Just a really Phil good Phil is beer. now doing an interpretive dance to express his desire, his enjoyment <laughs> of this beer. <laughs> uh, All right, Nick, what are we having? Uh, so we had a, uh, what was it? A batisserie? I think so. Neapolitan stout, uh, which is from Energy City Brewing, which is, uh, right over in Batavia, a few minutes away from here. Uh, it's an imperial stout brewed with cocoa, lactose, uh, lactose, strawberries, and Madagascar vanilla beans. Mm. Um, yeah, we've talked about it plenty of times. Stouts are are quickly becoming our new favorites. Oh, um, and this one, it was it was good. It was it was definitely good. It was yeah. a little sweet for my taste, yeah. but it wasn't overly heavy. Um, yeah, just just the sweetness kind of threw it off. For so me. this reminded me of a beer that Tom had brought on, and it was maybe a little sweeter than the one Tom had, but. Mm. I am again loving this. Like stouts go down so well, mm-hmm. and the the balance of the vanilla and the, the the strawberries. It was it was a really really good, not not too sweet in the sense of like a super super sweet beer. Right. I mean, this was it's not like a milkshake. No, no, nothing like that. But yeah, uh, yeah I really like this. Is this was really a good beer? Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a little left in the can. I'm gonna enjoy that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you guys want to uh, check out the beers we have on the podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can follow us on uh, Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Look for Barstool Politics on there, and you will find all of our reviews. So back to Iran. One of the more bizarre aspects of the Soleimani attack was Trump's threat to attack Iranian cultural sites if Iran retaliated against the United States. It came in a series of tweets on Saturday in which Trump said the U.S. had identified... 52 Iranian sites, some, quote, at a very high level and important to Iran and the Iranian culture, unquote, and warned that they would be hit very hard and very fast (laughs) if Tehran carried out revenge attacks on U.S. interests or personnel. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo appeared to try to soften the threat by saying the U.S. would act within international law. But the president later doubled down on his threat, saying, quote, they're allowed to kill our people. They're allowed to torture and maim our people. They're allowed to use roadside bombs and blow up our people. And we're not allowed to touch their cultural sites. It doesn't work that way. He's just got away with. Yeah, words. man. Uh, Trump ultimately walked back the threat on Tuesday when he conceded that striking such sites would amount to war crimes, noting, quote, if that's what the law is, I like to obey the law. <laughs> oh, Phil, the law is really clear on this one. Targeting a country's cultural sites is a war crime and not allowed. So what are we to make of Trump's persistent attempt to threaten Iran with attacks on its own cultural sites? 
Uh, so, I mean, I think there's a couple of aspects of this that are that are worth talking about. One, one of which is I, I think that in moments of crisis like this, when things are high, it, it, when tensions are high, it's really important to have a credible leader. And this is where Trump's kind of uh, willingness to stretch the truth or to talk a, a big game or to you know, exaggerate stuff, um, which is effective in a domestic political context, is problematic when it comes to international uh, situations like this. Um, so I think part of one of the issues is the credibility aspect. And this goes back to what I said before, which is that he issued this threat before Iran responded. And then they did what he said, you know, he was going to respond to and and then no response. The other part is that, yes, this is, I mean, international law is, is very clear. It's, it's, um, the, the principles of necessity and proportionality govern essentially uh, it's the overarching principle for most military uh, issues. So any sort of military act has to be necessary, meaning it actually you know is relevant. It, it actually furthers the military cause and it has to be proportional. So, you know, if if Iran kills one U.S. soldier, we can't respond by you know nuking the whole country. That's disproportionate. Um, and so, you know, attacking cultural sites is just it fails the necessity test, for, you know, from the top. It doesn't help win the war. It, it destroys. Cult. This is, you know, we go back to it was it was uh, um, the Taliban, right? Who was destroying and then, and then ISIS. cultural sites a few years ago and, yeah. and the world was was up in arms about it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. ISIS. That's right. Um, yeah. Well, it's, and it's important it's, to note that the United silly. States was one of the key actors pushing international law over many, many decades to say that you shouldn't be attacking these cultural sites. So this is going against the U.S.'s own normative order norms nick <laughs> i think it's really important in times of crisis like this to have an absolutely batshit crazy leader um <laughs> this is sort of the nixonian thing right this Make is him think exactly you're crazy. Yeah. realistically th this is it, it and it is what what he said is batshit insane it's completely <laughs> against international law but at the same time it does kind of put forward that point that we have no idea necessarily what he's going to do you talk about the uh the um the, the draft letter that was put out saying we're going to pull our troops out of Iraq, which I think was absolutely on purpose. Um, I, I think there is not merit, but benefit in having uh, or, or keeping a, 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 a sense of unpredictability about a president's actions. This is a little beyond the pale, but I think it's still in that same vein of, you know, Nixon potentially going back into Vietnam and carpet bombing everything. Reagan with Star Wars and and anything else related to the Cold War, um, I, I think there's there's real benefit to that. This one I, I don't necessarily agree with, but I I, I like the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an interesting you know I, I think about there's lots of issues in international relations where. Uh, sort of individual rationality and collective rationality conflict. So uh, you're exactly right, Nick, like having sort of an unpredictable leader. If you're Iran and you're not sure what to make of Donald Trump, you don't know how he's going to respond. You don't know if he's actually serious or not. That can be a good thing for the United States. But if you step back and you look at it from a global standpoint, if every leader is that way, it's really problematic, right? If you don't ever know what how anybody's going to react, it, it leads to all sorts of, of potential miscommunication. And, and, and uh, you know, if, if this is where Iran in their response was sort of telegraphing this, you know, we mean what we say, we will respond, but it's going to be limited. We want to take it down. And so 
understanding what they meant was helpful <laughs> for us in interpreting their actions. And so in this particular case, you're right. I think for the U.S., it can be beneficial to have a crazy-ish leader. Um, but for the world, if, if, if we don't have sort of clear, rational well, leaders, the world it's, reaction it's here was pretty good. universal, where everybody other than ISIS and the Taliban were saying, you can't do this, right? Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson <laughs> was, you know, you feel you sent me that message. Where, I mean, Boris Johnson is, is apparently <laughs> right. calling Trump saying you can't attack the cultural sites, right? I mean, this is he's put himself in a really unique category where the only people who are pro attacking cultural sites are the Taliban, ISIS and apparently Donald Trump. So that, that's weird. But the other thing is, why? What's the motivation here? Why is he doing this? I think there's something to, you know, threatening the cultural sites damages and undermines the identity, the culture of Iran, right? I mean, that, that gets to what Donald Trump likes to do. He likes to undermine identities and go after individual groups, whether we're talking about domestic groups or the Democrats. Like, he likes to make people less credible. Uh, and so he's attacking the dignity of the Iranian culture here. So I, I think that's more the kind what? of his, the dignity of the I mean, long his, historical culture, the Persian culture, right? I mean, so he's he's trying to attack that. Uh, and I, again, I don't think it's a good idea, but I, I understand where he's coming from. So. <laughs> we followed the bell well there. So, <laughs> yeah, right. so all right. Uh, should we stick with Iran, Nick? Uh, yeah, I all guess right, so. All right. All right. All right. So on Saturday, the White House sent Congress a formal notification under the War Powers Act of the drone strike that killed Soleimani. The notification is required by law to be within 48 hours of introducing American forces into armed conflict or a situation that could lead to war. Interesting, the notification only contained classified information, likely informing, uh, likely information detailing the intelligence that led to the attack. Speaker Nancy Pelosi said in a statement on Saturday evening that the notification, quote, raises more questions than answers and noted, quote, the highly unusual decision to classify this document in its entirety compounds our many concerns and suggests that the Congress and the American people are being left in the dark about our national security. Yeah. The Trump administration has maintained that they were operating on credible intelligence, showing that General Soleimani was involved in imminent plans to attack American interests in a handful of countries. Former Vice President Joe Biden attacked the action, declaring, quote, that President Trump has no authority to take us to a military conflict with Iran. Period. 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 Even though afterwards he was talking about Iraq (laughs) several times in a row. Congressional Democrats have also promised this act this week to (laughs) act to limit President Trump's ability to unilaterally order military action against Iran. Phil, there are a lot of really important questions relating to the use of military force and what role Congress should play. Do you want to start by breaking down the War Powers Act for our listeners? Because you're you're smart and you you know all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, listeners may be familiar, but but in case you're not, uh, you know, the War Powers Act goes back to the, basically the Vietnam War era. So at the end of Vietnam, it's 1973, uh, Congress, well, throughout the 20th century, there has been an erosion of legislative power and an accumulation of executive power. Presidents um, were increasingly able to basically do whatever they wanted in foreign policy. It goes with the commander in chief um, uh, aspect of the job. And so after Vietnam, the Congress passes the War Powers uh, Resolution, which attempts to to pull some of that power back. And, and to that extent, it's, you know, it's it's uh, it's commendable. Uh, but it's been largely ineffective. <laughs> I mean, the, the, there, there are questions of separation of powers and all sorts of other things that come into play here. But, you know, ultimately, Congress has the ability, the power of the purse. So in the end, Congress's real power is to say, we're not going to fund this. We're not going to fund a war with Iran. Um, 
but that's that's a that's a hard and relatively unpopular thing to do to cut Gotta funding for the troops. troops who are in the in the field of battle. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing that that is made clear is that there we need to have more of a discussion about what qualifies as war. What power does the president have? Is it unlimited or not? I, and this, there's an interesting theoretical debate here because you. In a democratic society, you want checks on one man's ability to declare war. Uh, but at the same time, the president needs to be able to respond quickly and decisively when things happen around the world. And so trying to find that balance has been the center of you know, a lot of the debate. Now, you know, Congress, it's it's again, Congress is, is complaining about this, but but they're the president. They've had many opportunities to essentially end the the authorization for the use of military force that that was put in place um, for the Iraq war that all pre- presidents, you know, Bush, Obama, Trump have used to, to has cited to continue uh, operations in the Middle East. And Congress is unwilling to do that. So it, it's it's hard to feel real sorry for them. But Having said that, also, it, this sounds relatively, you know, in terms of the intelligence, there were, you know, Mike Lee, there have been Republicans, Democrats on all sides who have said the the sort of argument about the imminence of this has been fairly flimsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nick, we're, we're, what are you feeling about this? I have no sympathy. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think that, um, yeah, I, to, to Phil's point, there's... Um, They've had every opportunity to curtail executive power for the past two decades, uh, both uh, with uh, in terms of uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq, the Patriot Act, whatever the hell you want to talk about. Um, And they've done nothing. You know, whether you think you're going to win political points in your district or you're going to come off as unpatriotic and you won't be able to win the election or your election. um, I, I don't really care. That's that's your job. If you think it is the the moral uh moral thing to do and, and the not politically expedient but um um what's the word um institutionally sound thing to do then that is your job mm-hmm. um in this particular situation uh i personally think he was uh, sticking it to the democrats which you know what god bless because the place is leaking <laughs> like a sieve um i i, I to you want to talk about telegraphing. I, I think that the information in, in terms of what was uh, or what had happened and what was about to happen, um, something would, would have leaked. Uh, and, and to provide um, additional information uh, in a political climate that is exceptionally polarized and focused around impeachment right now of a president who is authorizing these actions um, seems detrimental to carrying out military action. I would still hope we could, with a gang of eight, you could bring those individuals together and say, this is what we're up to. I, I, I get it. Oh, it so cute. in the short term, I think you're right. The president, the center of gravity always shifts to the presidency and they have the ability to do that. I, I do think it's interesting to, to Phil's point that, you know, the GOP Senator Mike Lee is coming out and attacking the Trump administration. You don't see many senators attack them for the information. This is Congress roles now, right? To step in and say, okay, what, you know, we want the information. We want to know whether it was imminent. And I think that's 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 a normal check and balance. Oh, I'm right. sure the evidence was razor thin because it wasn't there. <laughs> right. right. And, and so then then they should assert some authority. And I think you're spot on, Nick and, and, and Phil, that is, you know, for, for the last 20 years or so, Congress has 
abdicated their role. I think a lot of this goes back to the Bush administration, George W. Bush, and in particular, the role that Dick Cheney played. I mean, Dick Cheney reinvented the presidency with all sorts of power. And then the Obama administration comes in and they they said they were going to give that power back, but they never do. No president ever gives all of that power back. And now we've seen the Trump administration continue to, to exercise that executive power. Um, and it's it's not a f- it's it's not a good idea long term to just give so much power to one institution. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we separate this from the political atmosphere and Republicans and Democrats and all of that, the idea of the whole system is that we want checks and balances. The idea that yeah. the president has to go to Congress and get approval for launching an attack against a foreign nation is a good thing. We should get behind that regardless of who the president is, regardless of who's in control of, of Congress, because you should be able to persuade congressmen and women that this attack, if you have the, if it's actually a valid attack, if you think of, you know, the actual times that there's been a declaration of war. If we go back to World War II or World War I, it, it's easy to make an argument about why we need to get involved, right? We've been attacked at Pearl Harbor, whatever. And so that it's we've gotten so cynical about the political process that that everything becomes political. Um, and and I don't I don't know how to get out of that cycle, right? Because you're I mean, it is that's a that's a part of how it is. But but in the abstract, right, if we're just standing, you know, hovering above the world, trying to figure out what political system to put in place, one in which a president has to have, you know, more than just his own gut. He has to actually convince, you know, at least a handful of people. That's a good thing. Well, especially given the current situation with the Trump administration, where a lot of those key cabinet posts are still not filled, right? Right. Or empty. Homeland Security and other, and like the deputy secretaries are not there. I would, I would like to have Congress weigh in on some of these issues to at least be another, another voice. Uh, And I think you're right, Nick, that in the partisan dynamic, you couldn't bring it broadly, but go to some, you know, who the high level and and the gang of eight. (laughs) Well, and there's, I mean, from the to to there's a. Trump doing this, I mean, he's he's doing it similar to how other presidents have done it in the past and that he's right. using strong executive power, but he's doing it different in that there was no consultation at all. So previous presidents would at least consult with the Gang of Eight. And there's a reason to do that because it spreads blame and responsibility. If it went wrong, if Trump had done this and it had launched World War III with Iran and dragged you know Russia into it and all sorts of other stuff, there's... Being able to say, yes, we I had consulted with members of Congress and they were on board with this as well is a good thing. So most presidents have seen it as some f- form of cover to go to uh, Congress and get that that support. And, and that's where the antagonistic relationship between Trump and, and Congress mm-hmm. and Democrats is is playing differently. The other wild thing about all of this is that they did send the formal notification to Congress, but that was after Trump tweeted out notification. Right. And I think he was initially thinking, (laughs) right, I'm tweeting at you. Right. No, it doesn't count, Nick. Why? Those those are our official presidential communications. They 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 house all of them. Yeah. You're you're (laughs) right. Again, the sort of conversation we need to have as a country. There's (laughs) an interesting there have been legal questions about whether or not, you know, people 15 years ago and who were told they were stupid for asking those questions about is a tweet, a, you know, can can the president inform Congress through a tweet? And we haven't clarified that. Mm-hmm. 
Supreme Court. I don't know. Maybe they should do their yeah. jobs. All right, moving on. So let's 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 stick with Iran, but think about the Iraqi angle of Iran. Okay. So the Iraqi Parliament passed a resolution Sunday calling for the government to expel foreign troops from the country in the wake of the airstrike that killed Soleimani, raising questions about the future of the Allied mission that has successfully fought ISIS in recent years. Trump did not like this one bit and threatened to impose sanctions on the country if forced to withdraw American troops. Specifically, he said, "Quote: If they do ask us to leave." If we don't do it in a very friendly basis, we will charge uh, them sanctions like they've never seen before. It'll make Iranian sanctions look like something tame, unquote. (laughs) Wow. Trump also suggested that American forces wouldn't leave Iraq unless the country paid the U.S. back for its expensive air base. Go, girl. Yeah. Well, my guess is that cooler heads will prevail. Iraq is a sovereign state that absolutely has the right to kick the U.S. or any other country out at any point. Such a move would have a major impact on U.S. strategic interest in the region. The vote also demonstrates the degree to which the assassination has mobilized public opinion, both in Iraq and Iran, against the United States. Phil, what's your sense of all of this? I, I know you wanted you 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 enlisted recently, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After your back surgery, yeah, right. <laughs> Um, so first of all, I, I feel like we just have to talk about how insane it is that he says that if they make us leave, we're going to impose sanctions on them. I mean, this is an example of what you talk about, Nick, about the ability of the U.S. through, you know, we have power and so mm-hmm. we can do these sorts of things. But mm-hmm. the idea that we're in another country and if they ask us to leave, we're going to put <laughs> sanctions on them yeah. is crazy. Uh, this go, I mean, so I think this goes back to what we talked about with the cultural sites aspect as, as well. Um, you know, and whether, you know, sort of war crimes, I, I think it just comes down to the fact that Trump is uninformed about foreign affairs, whether it's questions of sovereignty, whether it's international law, whether it's these sort of international norms, which is where he ends up saying stuff that he's just, he's just talking, right? He's talking off the top of his head. Um, And, and, and he doesn't, he's not, he just doesn't think these things through. This is back to the point that I made that I was trying to make earlier, where I think that uh, whatever the benefits of getting rid of Soleimani are, and there are benefits, I I worry about the long term costs, right? The 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 ability to carry out our objectives in a broader way in the Middle East, whether that's in Iraq or Syria or Israel or, or whatever else. We haven't even had a discussion about what those objectives are and whether we should have these objectives in the Middle East at all. But, um, you know, the, the, this is, uh, again, our, our, the, the fight against ISIS is undermined by this. Our, you know, there's just lots of, uh, lots of bad shit that comes, that, that, that's the, the, that comes from the impact of this decision. Nick, any deep thoughts on this one? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, his response is, yeah, I, I think he's, he's talking off the cuff and it's, it's what he does. I, I, you'd figure we would be used to that by mm-hmm. now. And apparently we're, we're just shocked every time it happens. The other part of this is I, I don't see this being any different than the U.S. or the U.N. passing a, nine, a, non-bi- a non-binding resolution that in the end means nothing besides to you know wag your finger at something that someone else did, um, which is going to have no repercussions whatsoever. Um, and I, I do think that the the draft letter, quote unquote, that was circulated by the U.S. Uh, related to yeah. uh, us pulling out of Iraq was done purposefully to to show that, yeah, we were considering this. Uh, and I, I think that 
I, the Iraqis, they, they just, they, they don't, they, they can't have us leave. There's no possible way that they can do that. They're either going to be overrun by Iran or militia groups or, or take your pick of the just mountain of horrible groups and individuals there uh, right now. Uh, I, I, it's, I, I get why they did it. The same reason that uh, Iran chose to quote unquote retaliate the way that they did. Mm-hmm. It's to save face uh, or to save face and, and to show that, you know, we're not completely impotent in this particular situation, which they are, but it doesn't matter. But they could. I mean, I think you're right that it's not in Iraq's interest to completely kick the United States out, but they do have the ability to do so. I guess the question is, is, is all of this, and this goes back to our opening topic, is it worth it? To the threat because it's in the United States' interest to re- keep five thousand troops in Iraq to target ISIS to prevent Iraq from collapsing. Right? There, there's real strategic interest for keeping those troops there. So, does killing Soleimani is is that worth potentially losing your foothold in Iraq? And again, I I, I don't think it is. I don't think um, they would do it if they thought that there was a real possibility that they would lose their foothold in Iraq. I don't think it's even a possibility at this point. I, well, I wonder if, if enough between the U.S. and Iraq, you know, plays out. I could see Trump saying that's it, like he did with Syria. We're out. We're pulling back, and and that that's not in the U.S. interest. I think there's a difference between Syria, which is a a, a more nuanced conflict with a bunch of individual uh, or, or uh, sovereign players that are involved, um, compared to Iraq, which we've been in since what is it, two thousand three at yeah. this point, yeah which we focus on attempting to rebuild again, quote unquote. But we're not uh, rebuilding anymore. We're just killing ISIS, right? I mean, right. I but regardless, yeah. there's enough uh, U.S. materiel and personnel in there to prop up any sort of semblance sure. of a regime government there that is still functional. But, and they, they're yeah. exceptionally dependent upon that. They, they, absolutely. But th- this doesn't make your job easier there, right? I mean, the, no, it doesn't yeah. make it easier. So, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to try to kick us out either. No, I, I don't think so. But you never know how domestic politics play out, right? Uh, if, if, if the prime minister feels like he's going to lose his job if he doesn't kick the U.S. troops out, that guy will right. say, sure, of course, troops out. I'd rather stay in it, power. Right. It becomes a paradoxical situation here. in which a, a regime might need the U.S. there, but having the U.S. there undermines the regime if the U.S. is so unpopular with the Iraqi population. And so it, it becomes this, it, it just, it can't end well if that's the case. I, I mean, I, I think that's true in some situations. We've also seen instances in, in several other conflicts where it's more beneficial to align yourself with the U.S. and stay in power and have them protect you as opposed to trying to placate a population that is fairly fickle on political Mm -hmm. leadership to begin with, especially in unstable countries or regions similar to Iraq is right now. And that's a a really great question because I wonder what's going to happen with the Iraqi. I mean, we know where the Iranian public is going to be, at least for a while. And when will they turn back against the regime? Well, what's going to happen in Iraq, though? Will will that public continue to be anti-U.S. or will they say, well, it's it's really in our best interest? And we don't know yet. Uh, and I will say Iran is going to do everything to foment anger at the United States in Iraq. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, even though we've had a de-escalation, this 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 continues. Iran is too good at this game to just say, all right, we're going to back away. Which they've been doing for decades. Yeah. Which they're yeah. going to continue to do. And again, That's I, why think, they're not I think they're else. pretty good <laughs> at all of this. It's a, uh, 
I don't need to move on, but like North Korea is not as good at foreign policy as Iran is, right? right? Iran is is strategic. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about? Oh, we're done with Iran. Oh man, All right, we got to talk. Right, Let's talk impeachment. Final topic. Uh, we're, we thought we'd head back to a little bit of impeachment. On Monday, the former National Security Advisor John Bolton shook up the impeachment process by announcing that, quote, if the Senate issues a subpoena for my testimony, I am prepared to testify, unquote. Bolton is potentially a crucial witness as he has firsthand knowledge of many of the events that formed the House's impeachment of the president over the dealings with Ukraine. While this was occurring, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced that he has the votes to set the ground rules for impeachment with uh of donald trump without democratic support democrats want to deal up front to hear from witnesses and get documents but mcconnell says those matters should be dealt with later after opening statements uh phil bolton's announcement was a dramatic turn that could alter the political dynamic of the impeachment process and raise the risks for mr uh for trump of a republican defection what's your read on what bolton and his fan fancy mustache are up to <laughs> So uh, my uh, this is a big change for Bolton, because before he had said he would testify if the courts made him, basically. Um, So to to volunteer is a a huge shift. So if I step back from this, there's one of two possible reasons that I see this happening, one of which is he's become enough disturbed enough by Trump's foreign policy that he feels the need to intervene. That theory is undermined by the fact that nobody in America wants war more war with Iran more than John Bolton. So I that I don't I'm not sure that I believe that that's that's a a strike against that. The other theory is that he has had some sort of reassurance from the from the Senate about, uh, you know, from Mitch McConnell that he won't be called or that there will be a limit on the sorts of questions that will be asked to him. And that, you know, allows him to step forward and say, I'll testify if if um, I'm called. That raises an interesting legal question. I've seen a few people say that that the House should immediately subpoena, should re-subpoena Bolton, should should continue their investigation. There's no reason they can't, because the legal argument that that I'm willing to testify, I'm willing to recognize a subpoena from the Senate, but not from the House, essentially because one's Republican controlled and the other is Democratic controlled. There's no legal groundwork under that. No. So I, he, in some ways, I think. This could be a, a real mistake on his part in that it makes it harder for him to argue that he he can't go before the House. Um, I don't know. What, what's your take on it? Do you, why do you think this has changed? Can, can, just a, yeah. a quick question. Did the House try to subpoena him previously? I think that, I, I could be wrong here, but I think they asked him to testify and he said he would only testify with a subpoena. So I don't think they did they ultimately yet. subpoena him because they thought it was going to take too long. And I, I could be wrong about that. You thought it was going to take too long. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, it would get caught up in the courts. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious. Well, because he said it would only be with a subpoena. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. why, why, why would you otherwise? But Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a major figure within the executive branch. Why would you go to testify without a subpoena in that situation? Why wouldn't you? I, I mean, I like I, just just from a. <laughs> I, 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 I I understand. Hmm. I, I don't understand his. I mean, you know, the, the points that we're talking about right now, I, I understand why you would do it in terms of a Republican controlled Senate yeah. and a Democrat controlled House. Um, I, I don't understand what his motivation necessarily is to do it now. Yeah. It, it, right. Other than the fact that. He understands that 
whatever he puts forward in terms of a Senate trial would be curtailed based on the rules presented um, within the trial itself. I, like, I, I don't, I, I just, yeah. I don't get it. Here's what upsets me about all of this with Bolton. And I, and I think Bolton's being a bit of an ass clown here, right? If you've got information, either way, let's say you've got information that that exonerates the president, right? That says, you know what, that there was no quid pro quo. He knows, he knows maybe more than anybody else in this administration what was going on. He has a responsibility to his country, which I, I genuinely believe he loves. He should testify either to say what Trump did was wrong or what Trump did was innocent. This whole game of I'm going to testify if there's a subpoena or not a subpoena, maybe for the Senate, maybe not for the House. No. Or maybe I'll write a book and talk about it. No, you have a clear responsibility to your country to make clear what's going on. If Trump did nothing wrong, you should have shown up to the House and said to the House, this impeachment is bogus and you shouldn't be doing it. There's no quid pro quo. There was no deal with Ukraine. Uh, or if there is, he's got a responsibility. So I, I'm just really frustrated that he should know better. And he's he's just playing this game. And and the country deserves better. I, I mean, uh, is that would his testimony like I, I get yeah. what you're saying? Is that testimony in terms of the Ukraine incident itself? Is that outside of the scope then of the articles of impeachment? Because I know that argument's been made several times. Well, he could comment on all of that, right? He could say whether, I mean, he's 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 the national security advisor. Many of his staff members have testified and said there was a quid pro quo. We were told to do this. So he, but he is the definitive authority, right? He is the, unlike all these other, you know, deep state errors, he is somebody who was appointed by Trump. Nobody's going to accuse him of being, a, you know, a, he's, he's, he's a political appointee. He could clarify all of this. And the fact that he hasn't acted is, I don't know, it's frustrating for me. And I, I'm disappointed that he's not bigger than this. So sad. He's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for Phil to say something. <laughs> nope. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I missed this. It was a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so good glad to have you back. We got to start with uh, with foreign policy. Yeah. It's going to be a fun year. I am turning over a new leaf. Uh, my New Year's resolution is to make it clear that the media is the enemy of the people. And uh, we're going to go forward from there. So, uh, guys, I hope you hope you hope you tune in for that because it's going to be quite the ride. I'm, I'm done with it. Um, on that note. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at Bar, uh, Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Review us, share us, like us through there. Uh, and then our merch line on uh, teespring.com. Uh, check out uh, our our social profiles for the direct link to there uh do we do we have a hat no hats. mugs no just mugs t-shirts sweaters yeah. yes uh yep. hoodies i mean yeah. yeah um we'll put more stuff up on yeah. there um but yeah definitely check that out um anything else i missed that was just a deep episode deep we, we were in the weeds deep. yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right then we will see you guys next week cheers cheers, cheers.